Hi everyone, this is Max. Yo, hello everyone, this is Nabil. Yo. Yes, yo. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Equals, this is Nabil. Hot on the heels of Davos. Yeah, yeah, Davos was particularly big for you this year, Nabil. Max, well Davos is always amazing, right, to see this big debate kick off about obscene inequality. But also, what can I say? I found myself, you know, with this newfound fame this year. Yeah, your tweet was one of the real <laughs> highlights of the week. Two, 200 likes, man. What, 200 what can likes. I, I'm days away from it. Twitter blue tick. 93 followers even now. 93 followers. I mean, that makes you one of the Twitterati. I mean, it's only a matter of time before you outgrow this podcast, I think. I mean, what can I say? Look, uh, anyway, that's enough about me, Max. Let's talk about you. You've been missed. You've been missed on the podcast. I feel I haven't seen you in a little while. Yeah, that's because I haven't done the last few, Nabil. Um, and uh, I did wonder about that. I was kind of beginning to wonder whether I was being kind of edged out I mean, quietly. N- Nadia, Nadia is brilliant. Yeah, she's not bad. She, she, she's got, you know, she's got talent. Yeah. And look, I, look, 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 let me, let me be serious, Max. You are irreplaceable on this podcast and you're irreplaceable in our hearts too. Yeah, you say that now, but just you wait till you get to a thousand followers. You've moved, <laughs> you've moved on. <laughs> You know, you're saying, I remember those guys. Uh, so, so look, how, how was your Davos, Mr. Lawson? Oh, I love Davos. I love Davos Week. This is like the fifth year I've been involved in it. And it's just brilliant because it, it really, everyone is talking about inequality. It's, I'll be honest, it gets harder every year to come up with, with great numbers that really put a fresh perspective on the gap between rich and poor. But we had some really good ones this year. The one in your tweet was was fantastic, which was, let me get this straight. I think it's if we if you saved ten thousand dollars every day since the time of the building of the pyramids, you still wouldn't have anything like as much money as the richest people do today. The richest I mean, five billionaires, isn't it? It just it puts into perspective just how much money these people have got. And I think people are angry, right, about such obscene, extreme wealth. And one of the exciting things for me to see, you know, more than in years, were people questioning. The very existence of billionaires asking, do people need to have that much wealth? And, and actually, what, what do we do about billionaires? How do we abolish billionaires? Yeah, that was, that was a big change. Um, I mean, the, I mean, the other thing for Oxfam, which is crucial, is, is our ability to use this debate around inequality to move the debate on to the main theme of our report this year. And that was about the fact that our global economy is built on hundreds of millions of hours, billions of hours of unpaid and poorly paid care work caring for the sick, caring for the old, predominantly done by women. So that was what we were trying to show is how that's at the root of our global economy and at the root of inequality. Absolutely. And that's the very thing that we'll be talking about on the podcast today. We've got the real great honour, actually, of having Jayati Ghosh join us on Equals today. Now, Jayati Ghosh, she's one of the world's leading economists. She'd probably also say one of the world's most outspoken economists. And she's really kick-ass. Did you just say kick-ass? Max, I, I don't know what the language was in, in your time, but it's a, it's a really big compliment in this time. Um, well, Jayati, if you're listening, that's a compliment, <laughs> um, being called a kick-ass. But Jayati is really, she's professor of economics at JNU University in New Delhi, India. And she's really just closely involved with loads of progressive movements, organizations, an economist who puts her side on the side of justice. Yes, she really is an amazing woman. I've been following her work for for years and she's really inspiring, not just challenging the dominant economic paradigm, but really coming at it from a feminist perspective too. Absolutely, absolutely. Should we get to the interview? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. (music) 
Chiyati, hi, this is Nabil. Really big thank you for joining us on Equals. We're really very honored to have you. No, it's a great pleasure. Chiyati, let, let me start with something a bit kind of personal because just reading about you, learning about you, you know, it, you know you've been a prominent economist, world known, you've won awards, you know, you've really been known around the world. But despite all of that, I saw you described as, and I quote, a purported economist when people in power, they don't like what you have to say. Am I right in thinking these things, they, they don't get you down too much? <laughs> well, no, not at all, because this is actually something that many of us have had to face pretty much all our professional lives. And yes, it's certainly people in power who object when you critique something that they've been doing or some policies. But it's also other economists. If you ask questions that uh, interrogate the existing framework or if you bring in issues that they don't want brought in, then they turn around and say, oh, that's not real economics, that's sociology, as if it's some low-level mm. thing that you shouldn't really know about. <laughs> so, Jyoti, it's Max here. So, the Oxfam report this year for Davos was on the issue of unpaid care. So, we really tried to zoom in on the, the role of uh, unpaid work by women in particular in, in the world economy. But, of course, I mean, we're not by no means the first to say anything about that or, or, or particularly saying anything new, but we really wanted to use that platform to kind of look at the impact of women's unpaid care work on the global economy. And for the, for the benefit of our listeners, this is something you've spoken about very eloquently in the past. Could you, could you lay out for, for listeners the economic importance of women's unpaid care work and, and why we should focus on this issue? Yes, you know, I was absolutely delighted with this year's Oxfam report because I thought it brought into public focus something that is really undercover most of the time and which even mainstream economists tend to ignore or forget about and policymakers absolutely forget about. And that is how much of this unpaid care is actually a huge subsidy to the formal economy. So we kind of know that care work of all kinds, looking after the young, the old, the sick, and of course, normal adults who also feel they need care of different kinds, all of the things that are social reproduction, we know they're essential to society. And everyone takes it for granted. And it somehow is also taken for granted that such work will occur because it's so necessary. But there's a massive economic implication in terms of how it occurs and the conditions under which it occurs. So because of the way most societies are constructed in, in the gender differentiation, it's typically women and girls who take on the bigger burden of this unpaid care work. And of course, how much of the care work exists is also a function of how much society recognizes how important it is. But in addition, the fact that so many women are involved in unpaid care work is something that adds hugely to the nature of women's involvement in a society and economy. So you have this continuum between unpaid and paid care work and all kinds of other work. And because so many women are doing this, it really means that, first of all, women's work in general is devalued and women themselves are devalued because they're not seen as contributing economically and they don't get the power that you get when you contribute economically. Secondly, anything women do then gets paid less. So where you have a lot of unpaid work in the society, there you also have a larger gender wage gap. Because overall, you know, if women are working for free, then why should you pay them a lot more when they're not working for free? That's and, interesting. So yeah. it kind of drives down the price of women's labor. Absolutely. And the weird thing is that there's a wage penalty even for men who then do that kind of care work. 
So all kinds of things like nursery school teaching or elderly care or, you know, nursing, all of these things actually have a wage penalty even for the men who do it because of the fact that so many women are doing it. And and why do you think this issue is is so overlooked and and so neglected? I mean, people have been, I mean, in preparing this year's Davos report, we went back, we looked and, you know, you can see, you know, the profound discussion of this issue back in 1995 in Beijing, you know, this isn't new, but it's still being ignored um, by mainstream economics. And, And why do you think that's happening? Well, I would say one is, of course, that it's convenient to ignore it because it uh, reflects a lot, if you like, the overall power imbalances in society. And, of course, the gender power imbalance is a very, very massive one. You can see that uh, countries and societies where women's status is generally low are those where there is less of women's recognized work participation and more of women's unpaid work. But even in more gender-balanced societies, or shall I say less gender-unbalanced societies, <laughs> there's a lot. Uh, policymaking is generally blind to this. And that's because it's so convenient. It actually cheapens all these other costs, not just for private employers, but also for public policy. And so they, act, they encourage keeping everything undercover. But, you know, the other thing is that it's not just convenient to ignore, but that recognizing both the significance of unpaid work and the importance and all of that, and also the fact that it's really skilled work, that would become very challenging. That would mean that governments and private employers and everybody has to recognize that you can't just treat unpaid work as this thing that is going to be done residually by families and households without your worrying about it, but that you actually have to take positive measures to ensure that it's provided with sufficient quality and quantity. It's really interesting to me to see this as you know, as a representation of an economic model that's, you know, that's both rigged against the poorest, but also really rigged against women and girls. And just to take that a little bit forward, I know that you've, 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 you've been quite outspoken about some of the failings of the current economic model that you have. I wanted to just kind of challenge you a little bit here, Jayati, with some of the counter arguments that you get. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, there's a lot of celebration of the current economic model that we have. So people talk about, you know, we've had four decades of unprecedented growth, especially in a country like India, we've seen unprecedented numbers of women joining the workforce of becoming empowered economically for the first time ever. Even I can think I was just in Lahore just in a couple couple of weeks ago in Pakistan, where my family is from. And I've got cousins there, right? And they're women who are for the first time, they're going to university, they'll soon be entering the workforce in good jobs. And their grandparents and great grandparents weren't even going to school. So the, the kind of the challenge to people like you, maybe, Jayati, is, you know, why aren't you celebrating this enough? Well, I guess the answer would be that this is certainly the good stuff that is happening is certainly to be appreciated. But it's too slow. It's too inadequate. And I don't really think that it's all progress. Uh, you mentioned how in India, more and more women are entering the workforce. Hey, no. Actually, we have an unprecedented loss of women in the workforce. Extraordinarily enough, our labor force surveys are telling us that we've lost 9 million workers over seven years. And most of those were women. 
And I'm, I'm, I'm really interested here, Jayati, to, yeah. to go further on this issue of making the political argument because, you know, and, and, and you've, you've been with us in many of these, but we're often talking to political leaders around the world trying to make the case for equality. And when it comes to the issue of gender equality, very interestingly, it's almost hard to find a political leader today who doesn't fight, who doesn't say they fight for women's rights and fight for gender equality. And that's, that's a really great thing, right? But at the same time, the same politicians say then you push them on an issue like, you know, tax justice, right? You try yeah. to push them on an argument to say, let's work together to stop tax dodging. So we've got more revenues to get young girls into school. They say, well, actually, maybe that's a bit too left wing. Maybe that's actually, you know, we, we, can't, yeah. we can't work you with that. Yeah. You know exactly yes. what I mean, right? Yes, absolutely. So let, let, yeah. me, let me frame this in maybe a slightly cheeky way. But can you, can you, can you, can you be a feminist? And can you be a supporter of this dominant economic model at the same time? Is there a such thing as a neoliberal feminist? I would say no. Because, you know, for me, feminism is uh, is not just about, you know, promoting the rights of women. It's essentially about, about equality, about empowerment for everybody and economic justice. So I would say that this is a model which is so patently and blatantly against any form of economic justice that it's completely incompatible. But what the other thing you said is very interesting, this whole thing about how governments across the world and leaders across the world are all talking about women and women's empowerment and feminism a lot more. I have, I have a rather depressing observation, which is I've seen this in India, but I've seen this in a bunch of other countries. The more the leaders talk about it, the less they actually do. And this is also true fiscally. It's also true in terms of how much money they put aside, it's true of how much they're willing to tax those who can afford to be taxed in order to provide the basic needs and the economic and social rights of your population. It's in every possible way. The more they talk about it, the less you know they're going to do it. And the ones who actually do it, they don't talk about it so much. You've done a lot of work uh, looking at the, with the ILO, looking at the future of work. And it's, a, it's an issue that we're interested uh, enormously in, in Oxfam. Obviously, it's it's... it's very contentious and, and hotly debated. But if we picture, I mean, recently I was in um, Myanmar and we met with young women in garment factories, you know, they're sewing fast fashion for the high street in the UK or main street in America. And their jobs, they're, they're long hours. They're not, they don't have toilet breaks. They're treated terribly, but in some ways they've got, they've got a job in a way that generations before them haven't and it's both an empowering and also an oppressive experience at the same time but fast forward 10 years in the future you know there's a factory outside london somewhere that has a row of 3d printers that is printing t-shirts automated completely that doesn't seem completely science fiction and that would mean far, far fewer jobs uh, for everyone, but particularly for, for women. How do you see the future of work? Do you sign up to the idea of the, a jobs apocalypse? Do you, are you more optimistic about it? How do you feel about automation? So I actually welcome automation. I think anything that reduces drudgery, repetitive tasks, etc., etc., is to be welcomed. And we are the beneficiaries in our own lifetimes of so much more in terms of uh, ease of doing things and reduction of drudgery and arduousness of work and so on, that I don't think we should in general fear it. 
The reason people fear it is really because uh, all these new technologies have the misfortune of being brought in in a neoliberal era, in an era in which we have lost the imagination to recognize that when you have much more productive activities because of new technologies, you can tax those activities and transfer those surpluses into spending that creates new activities. And I'm thinking particularly of two sectors where there is huge potential for job creation, care work and the creative industries. I think we already talked about care work, right? How much of it is unpaid? How much of it is undervalued by society? How much of it is in terrible conditions and often in very, very long hours and, and so on? Now, supposing we didn't do that, supposing we actually provided decent levels of care. In fact, I did a sort of general, very basic back of the envelope calculation. Supposing we in the developing world, we just provided Sweden levels of care in terms of care workers to population. Okay. And you get 240 million more jobs globally in 2025. And that's just a very basic low-level thing. I haven't even included all the support services of care or all the other kinds of care, you know, the different kinds of therapy and, and so on. I think what we don't recognize is that care work dramatically improves quality of life. But in order to do that, you also have to treat care workers with respect and dignity and give them decent remuneration. Jayati, I think we, we're going to have to re have to recommend you to write an article or something about this because... Yeah. Um, because putting it in those terms, at, you know, in the face of unemployment, in the yeah. face of underemployment, it's just a very persuasive argument. But Jayati, can I let me put this argument to a different way? This question yeah. to a different way. If you, if you as 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 Jayati Ghosh was, you know, were you were appointed a commander of an army of robots <laughs> now, yes, and they're all at your disposal, yeah. What 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 would you point and, and order them to do? There's a whole bunch of things where you can't replace human interaction. Okay? And that's why I'm emphasizing care work, creative industries, because these are places where the relational and you know, human activity is so important. So you can have technology assist you, but it can never replace you. On the other hand, if someone is going to say, you know, copy down various things or transmit information in a kind of mindless bot-like way, sure, go ahead. You know, or if someone is going to be drilling holes or if someone is going to do construction activity in a mechanized way that doesn't involve people carrying heavy loads on their heads, climbing up scaffolding, I'm all for it. Yeah, I think I, I completely read, agree, Jayati. I think uh, it, 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 it's a function of the economic system, whether people are scared or excited exactly. about technological progress. And I think um, the reason people are scared is because of neoliberalism and they fear exactly. that it will just drive further inequality. And they're right to think so because that's what it's done so far. And leaders have used technology as an excuse to get away with it. Yeah, they, they talk about it like it's the weather. They can't control it. It's some immutable yeah. force of yeah. globalization. And, you know, that's why your job was lost. It's not my fault as a politician. And yeah. in fact, I, I have an even sort of deeper conspiracy theory. I think a lot of the Davos-style sort of fear-mongering about this tsunami of lost jobs, etc., is also to keep the working class in its place. I mean, you know, when neoliberalism has already battered everyone down, but now they're telling you, listen, you ain't seen nothing yet, you know, wait till you see all these other job losses, so you better behave yourselves and don't ask for anything. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, don't start asking questions. Yeah. <laughs> it's designed to keep you on the back foot almost. Absolutely, yes. So, Jati, one um, direction... Um, 
we were talking before the interview about how much admiration we have for you speaking out and and recognizing the fact that economics is really a political thing i mean you've said before how i mean when people think of authoritarians they tend to think of you you know u.s president donald trump but there are just as many strongmen leaders in asia that are securing what you said was securing public support by preying on economic ignorance could you tell us a bit more what you mean by that yeah, in fact, I really think that what you're observing in the U.S. and maybe in Europe in some countries is almost that they're learning from these people in Asia, these strong men in Asia. Uh, I could name some countries, but I think it's kind of obvious that we have at least four or five of them who are broadly similar in terms of a very populist rhetoric, a very strongly authoritarian and centralizing streak an amazing capacity to divert public attention away from the real bread and butter economic issues to particular and often very divisive issues, whether they are against migrants or people of a particular religion or people who are supposedly associated with the drug trade or whatever. So they tend to divert and divide and polarize communities and use that as a basis for establishing absolute control while doing almost nothing to improve essential economic conditions of the ordinary people and engaging in a form of extreme crony capitalism. It's funny how you say that, actually, Giardi, because it does seem like there is almost a formula now which is used around the world. And it's and and there is a dangerous relationship, isn't there, between this authoritarian streak, um, even maybe a racist streak at times, and at the same time, an extreme form of neoliberal capitalism. Yes, yes. And you see, the terrifying thing is that a lot of our earlier natural political economy assumptions kind of fall by the wayside. So, Giatti, as we approach the end of this interview, I'm a bit worried now because we always like to have a positive question about hope and, and, where, you, and where you find hope in the world against fight, against, you know, in the fight against inequality. And, and you must know Devaki Jane, right? And yes, she's an yes. incredible feminist economist and we really admire her. And, and she came on this show on Equals and, and we asked her this at the end of the interview. And she said she didn't have much hope, actually. She talked about countries moving from democracies to dictatorships. So, so I'm going to ask you where you find hope, but I'm also going to try to ask you to politely disagree with her, if that's possible, Jayati. Well, you know, I, I wonder when you asked her, how many months ago? Because I think the last few months have changed a lot of our opinions. And I think even Devaki's own opinions may well have changed over the last few months on this matter. So, yes, I do disagree. I mean, Devaki is an amazing mentor and an inspiration, I think, to all of us. Uh, on this one... I think even she would no longer be quite as depressed because something has happened in India over the last three months. And it was almost like the last straw on the camel's back. Suddenly we have pushback. And this pushback came from the most unexpected quarters. It came from students, particularly young women students. And it came from women. It's quite amazing because I have, su I have such awe of this younger generation. They have something that we really don't have. They're fearless. They're witty, they're creative, their slogans are so much fun. They, they have fun in the processions, they do dancing, they're singing. I, I am absolutely in awe of what's happening in India today. And Jayati, that is surely also credit to you and, and to many people like you who have, who have built and formed and inspired this generation. Well, I wouldn't say that. I think, honestly, I get much more inspiration from them today. Uh, I'm just proud to be even marginally associated with it. It does, whatever happens, 
the fact that this kind of upsurge could take place is for me a, a massive uh, recognition of the way that you can't keep Indian democracy down. Brilliant. Very hopeful. Great hopeful yeah. answer. Very hopeful. Yeah. inspired. We've got That's hope again. Definitely cheered us up. Yeah, I, I tell you, I really am, you know. I mean, I'm not even making this up. I, I see these young students and I, I just, I'm overcome. Jati, on that note, let us let us thank you for your time and, and thank you for everything that you're doing in the fight against inequality and and uh, and really for giving us so much hope. Yeah, well, thanks for all the support and solidarity. Wow, that was a really powerful interview, wasn't it? Yeah, really hopeful as well, really inspiring. Totally, and it seems that we can't talk enough about this issue of unpaid care work. And also we need to talk really lots more about how our economy is really founded on exploiting the labour of women around the world. Yeah, it was great to hear Jayati say how much she liked the Oxfam Davos report, which has really gone down well and really shone a light on this incredibly uh, large subsidy that women's unpaid work is making to the global economy. And I saw this figure that we came out with, $10.8 trillion a year. That's what, if you add up all the unpaid care work that women and girls are doing around the world, that's it's what it comes huge to. It's a yeah, What, it's three a... times the size of the global tech industry? That was what we said, three times the size of the tech industry, just to give you some idea how big that is. And also, uh, it's and really on the conservative side of an estimate. The real figure is almost certainly a lot higher than that. It's a huge subsidy to the global economy. So Jayati was really blunt, wasn't she, about how sexist our global economy is. She also blunt in the face of this celebration that, hey, everything's wonderful, everything's fine, everything's getting better. You know, she had some truth to say there. But the other thing I really appreciated, Max, was how clear she was about, you know, these politicians around the world who talk a really good talk about gender equality. But when you actually look at what they're actually doing, it's not so good. I agree with her. I think there is, you, people are tripping over themselves to burnish their gender credentials. <laughs> but at the same time, many of these same people are backing the kinds of economic policies, the kinds of austerity policies that hurt women. Yeah, and I think, I think you know, we won't mention any names here. We'll leave it to the imagination of our listeners. And there are a few good actors, but it is a really worrying sign. Definitely. And it's a, it's a flat contradiction. So she's right there. And the one number that I will remember from this interview, Max, is, is that 240 million. 240 million jobs that could be created around the world is what Jayati said. If we invested in care in the right way, that's a big number. That's a quarter of a billion. It's a big number. And it's also very inspiring because she tied it to her, her understanding of technological change and automation and how we could really change the nature of work and use this as an opportunity to invest in care and invest in hundreds of millions of care jobs. So yeah, I really like that idea. And with some imagination and refusing to believe that technology is something that's just raining down from the heavens that we can't control. No, it's in our control and we can shape it for the good and for the, for humanity at large. Yeah, I think it's, 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 sometimes it's, there's a lot of scaremongering about technology and how it's going to destroy so many jobs. And there will be huge change. But we have to remember that technology has the power to lift huge burdens off the shoulders of people. I mean, just think, think for instance, a simple technology like the washing machine, what that has done for hundreds of millions of women. And then think of the hundreds of millions of other women who have to still wash clothes by hand in countries like Kenya. That kind of automation can make a huge difference. Max, it's nice to hear you talking so positively about technology for once, you know, given your record with tech. Uh, yeah, it's true. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, what do they say? I'm an analog man. And a How's your black and white TV? 
I, I've got to say, I'm still impressed with coloured TVs. Washing machines are still an innovation for me. So wait till I, you discover the smartphone. <laughs> yeah, I've heard they're really good, really whizzy. I can't wait to get one. <laughs> the, the one thing I think, and maybe we can do a future podcast on this, the one thing I think we need to discuss further is just the shape of business itself, right? You talked about those garment workers in Myanmar, gave that very powerful example of how in 10 years' time those jobs could be disrupted. We could see T-shirts instead being printed by 3D printers, right, Uh, on the outskirts of London. For me, those jobs will be disrupted, but, you know, the same rich owners with the same big companies will be reaping the rewards from those businesses. And it's who benefits from business that we really need to think about and change. Yeah, someone said in the US, it's not about the robots, it's about who owns the robots and whether we're taxing the robots and the kind of business model. Technology is not bad or good. It can really deliver for ordinary people or it can continue to deliver from a very rich elite of billionaires. And, you know, we hear about these big monopolistic big tech giants, you know, the names of the Apples and the Googles of the world. But I'm I'm also seeing examples of really inspiring kind of new tech businesses. Let me give you this example that I came across the other day, Max. It's called Up and Go. It's a cleaning business. It's in New York. It's an app. It's founded by women workers, predominantly from Latin America, you know, women workers. And they make the decisions of what happens with that platform. They earn at least $25 per hour. You know, that's way more in an industry that's that's rife with exploitation. It really is in low wages. And they're taking home 95% of the profits. 5% goes back to the app. Compare that to Uber, where I think 25% goes to Uber and poverty wages paid to taxi drivers. It just goes to show it depends on what the economic model is behind the technology. That can make the difference. And we can have an exciting future for tech and an exciting future for business. Very optimistic, Bill. Great optimistic finish. <laughs> so what, what have we got coming up next? Oh, so, so Valentine's Day is coming up, isn't it, Max? Valentine's Day is coming up and we're going to bring together Equals and Valentine's. We're going to interview an activist couple who met together on the barricades and have been fighting inequality ever since. So hopefully that should be should be good. An equal spin on Valentine's. Yes, hopefully very romantic. Folks out there, really look forward to you joining us for the next episode. Thanks for joining us for this one. Do subscribe. Do share equals with your friends, with your family, and do let us know your feedback. Anything you'd like to hear on this podcast or that we can do differently, email us at oxfam at equals at oxfam.org. Thanks very much. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.